This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas in educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. The Globalization and Education Special Interest Group of the Comparative and International Education Society will be hosting a public webinar on December 12th entitled Puncturing the Paradigm, Education Policy in a New Global Era. The webinar will bring together the four co-editors of the newly published Handbook of Global Education Policy, Karen Mundy, Andy Green, Bob Lingard, and Tony Verger. During the lead-up to the event, Fresh Ed will interview a few of the co-editors to set the stage for the webinar. Check out freshedpodcast.com for more details about the event. Today, I speak with Professor Andy Green about the global education policy of social cohesion. Uh, Almost every document that you'll find coming out of national governments and indeed transnational organizations will refer in some way to the importance of cultivating social cohesion and citizenship and so on through the education system. Although we often think of global education policy as primarily concerned with economic development, it also has been historically connected to the idea of creating a cohesive group of people who share certain norms and customs. Benedict Anderson called this imagined communities. Andy Green has looked at the effect from education on social cohesion across the globe. It would seem that social cohesion does work somewhat differently in different countries. Well, this is where you have to start uh, making this difficult distinction between what benefits individuals and benefits uh, society as a whole. Andy Green is Professor of Comparative Social Science and Director of the Center on Learning and Life Chances at the Institute of Education, University College London. Andy Green, welcome to Fresh Ed. Well, well, it's a pleasure to be here to talk to you. What is social cohesion? Well, social cohesion fundamentally is all those properties which uh, bind societies together. Uh, So it might well be uh, common values, common lifestyles, common identities. Uh, It may simply be the rule of law. Uh, You can define it in quite a number of different ways. Um, I would say you need to define it quite broadly, though, as the set of attitudes, values and behaviours Uh, that binds societies together, Um, bearing in mind that uh, social cohesion actually works quite differently in different places. So um, I wrote a book some years back called Regimes of Social Cohesion with my um, co-author, Herm Yanmat, and we were looking at countries across the developed world, basically, at what factors seem to be holding their societies together, what was the nature of social cohesion in those different societies. And it transpired there were groups of countries, basically in different regions, uh, which were quite distinctive. So, for instance, English-speaking countries, which aren't regional, of course, um, but have a cult- common cultural history, um, tended to have uh, you know, a core set of values, uh, key values, Uh, not a strong emphasis on a broad set of common values because they're very diverse societies generally. And the key value tends to be about uh, opportunity and rewards for merit, if you like, meritocracy, some people would say, Um, which is a little bit different from what you'd find in countries with uh, republican systems like France, where there's much less emphasis on 
uh, social mobility, but more emphasis probably on equality of outcomes, and where a dominant lifestyle traditionally with a broad set of values has been uh, rather more important, although this is clearly under strain these days. And then again, you get Scandinavian countries where um, identity and uh, social cohesion revolves very much around their particular forms of welfare state and a very, very strong belief in those countries uh, in equality of outcomes. And you can find different things again if you go to East Asian countries, for instance, where you can provisionally sort of identify a form of social cohesion based very much on Confucian values. So here it's um, respect for elders, respect for the state, and so on, uh, as well as a common sense of cultural identity are extremely important. So it would seem that social cohesion does work somewhat differently in different countries. People tr do try to develop a single definition, which is okay in my view if it's a fairly broad definition. Uh, they also try to measure it with a single set of measures, which is rather difficult because uh, it's basically a cluster of different things and the cluster of different properties may be different in different countries. And uh, so having a single scale of measurement is rather difficult. Very often, though, the key measure is taken to be uh, levels of social trust. That's to say how far we trust other people and particularly how far we trust people we don't, we don't know. What's the connection between social cohesion and education? Social cohesion has always been a primary aim along with economic development and so, so on and so forth. It's almost always been there somewhere in the big visions for education systems. So, like, so governments... Uh, when they create policy, they, they would not only see their education system as producing future uh, laborers in the national economy, but also creating citizens and members of society um, that, that would come together in some form, broadly defined notion of social cohesion with these different values being emphasized in different countries. They would. It's been typical of all uh, newly created public education systems um, from the early 19th century onwards, uh, that forming of citizens uh, was one of the main purposes of an education system, as long as as well as uh, you know developing skills and so on and knowledge for for the economy. Uh, it tends to be particularly important uh, in new states which don't have a common identity firmly established or institutions firmly established. Young states always emphasise the forming of citizens as a primary role of education. In more, uh, in older democracies, it's tended to take second seat to economic development. I suppose skills formation becomes more important uh, than citizen formation, but it's not disappeared. That's the important thing. Uh, almost every document that you'll find coming out of national governments and indeed transnational organisations will refer in some way to the importance of cultivating social cohesion and citizenship and so on through the education system. So would you be able to say that social cohesion is, is in a sense, um, a global policy of education? Uh, yes, I would. But it, it, uh, it's referred to in different ways, perhaps in different international organizations, depending on their remit. So the OECD uh, the European Commission will, will use the word social cohesion quite frequently. 
OECD likes the term social capital as well. Um, if you look at the outputs of, say, the World Bank or UNESCO, where they're looking at a wider range of countries, including less developed countries, uh, peace education might well be the main focus, or post-conflict education, education in conflict societies or post-conflict societies. They're all talking, though, about different forms of social cohesion, really, with different emphases. So what sort of education initiatives exist, you know, for peace education or citizenship education or social capital? Like what, concretely, what are these educational initiatives that are either being promoted at the global level or within the national level, or perhaps both? Uh, well, at the national level, most countries have uh, citizenship education as part of the curriculum. It may be cross-curricular, it may be a separate subject, but it's there in almost all countries. Um, there may be allied to that a number of procedural things around schools, say, which are designed to boost uh, cooperation amongst children and common understandings and so on. This may take the form of schools, councils, or these kind of things. So structures uh, would be part of it, as well as the curriculum. Um, other initiatives have been tried in countries, uh, you know, in, in the throes of conflict or in post-conflict societies. Um, common education uh, across divides, say in Northern Ireland during the Troubles, there was quite a strong initiative to uh, build a, a set of schools which would uh, cross the Catholic-Protestant divide and so on. This kind of thing has been tried in various different societies. Um, uh, education about the values of peace and so on is something that's often tried in many uh, conflict-riven and post-conflict uh, societies. But you could add to to that broader concerns about the social society, if you like, and how education can contribute and include environmental education. Um, notably, education on relationships, on birth control and family planning and so on in uh, poorer countries would be seen as part of education for social cohesion because of its proven very beneficial effects in uh, raising the esteem of women and in reducing population growth and so on, which can have all sorts of, uh, you know, social benefits. So I would ex extend the, uh, you know, the range of social cohesion policies quite widely in that sense if you're talking about developing countries. What has been the efficacy of some of these initiatives? Like, are they creating more social cohesion? Well, this is where you have to start uh, making this difficult distinction between what benefits individuals and benefits uh, society as a whole. Um, politicians tend to start with the easy part, which is measuring the benefits to individuals. And certainly for developing uh, developed countries, and it probably applies for developing countries as well, although we don't always have uh, such good data to show it. The general pattern is that more educated people uh, tend to be more tolerant of other values and lifestyles. Uh, they tend to be more politically engaged. Uh, they tend to show a higher, uh, better signs of health and fewer signs of uh, depression and, uh, and negative aspects of health. 
Uh, they're less likely to be overweight as children, and the list goes on and on and on. So uh, they tend to vote more in countries as well. So at the individual level, higher levels of education, particularly up to degree levels, are certainly associated with uh, social outcomes, which most people would be would consider good. Um, but there, there are questions about that way of looking at it. There are two sorts of questions. One is, was it the education which actually caused them uh, to have those social attributes, or did they have them already? Uh, is it to do with who selected, what you call selection effects in statistical analysis, uh, which is an important issue because it may be education is not adding that much. Uh, it's the people themselves who go into higher education, for instance. Uh, the evidence, though, tends to suggest there is an effect from learning, uh, as well as any effects from, from selection. Um, so at the individual level, yes, uh, there are clear benefits to individuals um, from high levels of education. They're likely to be more engaged politically. They will trust more generally. Um, they're more likely to vote and they're likely to be healthier. So how do we apply that to you know, from the individual to the social benefit? Is it just, can we aggregate? Can we just look at all of these individual benefits and, and say, you know, if most people in society have these individual benefits and we have some level of social cohesion? Is that, is that possible? Is that how the policymakers do it? Um, that tends to be the start, the, the start of the reasoning, but it rather quickly breaks down uh, because many of these properties don't aggregate for one reason or another. So, I mean, to take a quite commonly uh, cited example, generally speaking, more educated people in most countries are more tolerant. Uh, they're more tolerant of other sexualities, other lifestyles, other religions, and so on and so forth. It doesn't apply in every country, but in most countries, there is a relationship there. Um, however, more better educated countries are not necessarily more tolerant uh, in the aggregate. And uh, what we see in many countries now is increasingly educated societies uh, judged on people's qualification levels and declining levels of tolerance. So something else is intervening. It's not that tolerance isn't promoting, um, sorry, education is not promoting tolerance. It probably is, but other things are uh, over, are uh, working against it. Um, so you can have increasing levels of education at a societal level, but it's not showing up in increasing levels of tolerance. So you then have to start asking difficult questions about what else is involved in the, in the context, which may be working against it, and how far uh, the individual's tolerance anyway, um, you know, aggregates at the social level um, to more individuals being tolerant lead to a more tolerant society generally, other things being equal. That's where the difficult questions start to enter in. And so what sort of theories have been put forward to to you know to explain social cohesion at the group level rather than at the individual level well you have to start talking about um what social scientists call mechanisms so that what's the transmission mechanism for individual values uh affecting societal values and so on and um the research that's done in this area more or less identifies four kinds of effects. Um, the simplest would be what I've described already, 
uh, for tolerance, it would be what we call absolute direct effects. So a direct effect is where education through learning or socialization or whatever's happening uh, is having a direct effect on somebody's attitudes which carries through into later life. That's a direct effect. It would be an indirect effect if education was increasing people's employability, got them better jobs in later life, and if it were the better job, they were raising their levels of tolerance. So an absolute direct effect um, is one that occurs without any mediation from anything else. And uh, being absolute, it means that it should aggregate. So uh, most of the research on tolerance suggests that uh, actually, in large part, it is an absolute direct effect. And the argument made by psychologists would be along the lines of higher education make, raises your cognitive abilities, which means you bet, makes you better able to uh, disentangle uh, poor arguments, to see behind stereotypes, uh, to challenge the logic of prejudicial kind of thinking. Um, but the second part of it would be education simply, as they used to say, broadens your horizons. You get more experience of different types of people, uh, different countries, different living situations, even if at a distance, you know. Uh, you have a wider experience and that in itself is said to make you more sympathetic to, to difference and therefore, you know, the other person. Um, so education there is making a direct contribution. Uh, immediately. It may f make further contributions later through helping people get jobs which may make them even more tolerant. Uh, it may. Um, but the complication there is that there are countervailing effects from other things uh, which may mean that even though education is increasing amongst individuals and at the societal level generally uh, you don't see uh, uh, raise rising levels of tolerance. But it's still a direct effect. Doesn't mean say it's not education is not helping. It just means it's not helping enough to counteract things which are uh, having a negative effect. So that would be um, the simplest kind of aggregation mechanism. So you could say that education here is is certainly contributing to an aspect of social cohesion. Now, of course, in some societies, tolerance is not. Uh, is, is such a high value isn't placed on tolerances in others and social cohesion may not rest on it so to such a degree but in most western societies tolerance will be fairly uh, key um, you might have uh, another situation would be where you have these direct effects but in addition to that you have uh, other effects which result further down the line from the impact of your education on employment so to take the tolerance example again uh, you may have been socialized and learned towards uh, to being having more tolerant attitudes uh, your higher qualifications may also get you a higher level job which may in itself promote more tolerant attitudes through various uh, psychological mechanisms maybe you feel less threatened by others and so on and so forth so that would be a kind of a cumulative uh, process um, and then rather different is uh, what we call relative effects or positional effects and this is where um, education 
uh, is having an effect on something, uh, but it is not the absolute level of education you achieve that has the effects, it's the level of education of yourself in relation to others. So it may be that some of the benefits of education result from the fact that you are better educated than others, you get a better job than others, and it's that better job compared with others that has the social benefits for you. And in that kind of situation, it can be a zero-sum game. You can have more and more people being educated, but it's only the best educated uh, who get the benefits. And the, the classic illustration of this would be work that's been done by um, Nye and his collaborators in the US, for, for the US actually, on, uh, on political engagement. And their finding is really that... Uh, effects of education on being engaged politically in key activities and they're talking about um, belonging to parties, campaigning for parties, uh, voting of course, um, having particular roles, influential roles in parties. They're saying that actually this is uh, promoted by education but it's strictly uh, positional in as much as uh, only some people can be at the centre of the action and the, only the people at the centre of the action are going to have real influence and that again is a positional matter so it's only the very best educated who will get those key roles in party campaigns or who will get to advise people who will get the ear of important people uh, who will influence policy uh, and because of all those opportunities they're having they're more likely to be interested and engaged to to do those things and uh, the argument these authors make is that uh, uh, it's a zero-sum game basically there are only a certain number of set what they call network central positions uh, where you can have an influence and you know twice as many people may have degrees but it's still only going to be that small percentage who are best connected and best educated who will have the effect so this is how they would argue, uh, explain why in a country like the US, where people are more and more educated, uh, actually there's no levels of political engagement are going down in actual fact. Uh, voting levels are going down and so on and so forth. And what's more, younger generations who are more educated than older generations are less prone to be politically engaged. Um, and that's why. It's a relational thing, it's positional. So not everybody can be the best educated. So in this case, um, you know, the effects of education on individuals is not translating into societal benefits at all. It's translating into some benefits for some people. And that's true probably of quite a lot of the things we uh, think of in terms of the social benefits of education. They are probably of that nature. They're positional. Uh, they, and one other possibility, which is really quite different actually, but it's quite important nevertheless, is uh, what you might call, or what I would call, distributional effects. And this is uh, not to do with individuals. Individuals don't have distributions. It's to do with how education and skills, the outcomes of education, are distributed across society, and whether it's that very distribution that affects social cohesion. And we have done some research on this, um, which follows 
a similar logic to a lot of the research done by people like Wilkinson and Pickett on the effects of income inequality uh, on social outcomes. So the, the very popular and widely disseminated work of Wilkinson shows that uh, if you look across a range of societies, societies where incomes are more equal generally have better health, lower childhood obesity, lower suicide rates, lower mental health problems, um, they have higher levels of political engagement, and the list goes on and on and on. I mean, so many social benefits, some of which you'd associate with social cohesion, are related to lower levels of inequality. Trust, by the way, is, is primary amongst those. So it would seem that it's hard to explain exactly what's happening, but it would seem that uh, lower levels of inequality in income, anyway, is important. Um, well, in the same way, lower levels of inequality in skills may be important uh, to achieving certain social benefits from learning. And there is a, a psychological theory behind this which is quite plausible. It's quite hard to prove statistically, but certainly there's a theoretical model that's believable. And that basically is about uh, in societies with very, very uh, unequal levels of education, very unequal levels of skill, um, the social distance between groups of people at different levels tends to be greater. Therefore, conversation tends to be more difficult and suspicion is higher and trust is lower. But at the same time, in unequal societies, you have more high-stakes competition, competition. There's much more at stake in any given competition over resources, jobs, housing, whatever it is. There is more at stake, quite simply, because some people, uh, the top, the good, the top end is much a long way away from the bottom end. And the argument that social psychologists make about these situations is that, um, and actually you can find it in uh, behaviour of animals as well, if you put a lot of people uh, in high-stakes competitions where there's high levels of inequality, there's high levels of stress and anxiety, and stress and anxiety is associated with all sorts of negative social outcomes, particularly negative health outcomes. Uh, so those would be distributional uh, kind of relationships between skills and uh, education skills and positive social outcomes. And uh, here it's not how much you educate any individual that matters, it's really how you spread the education around. So of these four approaches, the, the absolute direct effects, the cumulative effects, the re uh, relative effects, and the distributional effects, which approach do you, you know, do you normally think is the, the, the correct way to approach social cohesion? I think it depends on the case. It's horses for courses. Um, each, you know, you're looking at particular values in each case, things you can measure. And uh, in the case of tolerance, I think the argument is pretty strong that it is a direct effect of education, which can be affected by context uh, as well. But it is an effect of education. Uh, if you're looking at, as I said, something like political engagement, it is pretty positional. And there may be quite a lot of other effects which are in the same way positional. Uh, if you're looking at trust, I would put that in amongst those things where you have to look at the distributions, 
how education is spread around, it seems just, if not more important, um, than the actual levels of education, you know, the averages in a country, in cross-country studies. So, and this is where policymakers uh, lose touch slightly, I think, because uh, they're inclined to only look at individual direct effects. It's easier to comprehend. Uh, they're a bit suspicious of distributional matters, even though the evidence is there. Talking about social trust, how is that even measured? How do you go about measuring social trust in a society? Um, well, social trust has been measured actually for quite a long time, uh, going back for Western societies, at least going back to the 1960s. Uh, there was a study by, well, a study by Almond and Weber about civic culture, which had some of the first measures. And it's been measured uh, going through uh, th with the European Valley Survey and the World Valley Survey, uh, starting not long after that, uh, right through to the present day. And they generally ask the same question, which is, uh, how much do you think other people can be trusted or would you uh, never be too careful? Or variants on that. So there's a, there's a pretty standard question they ask people. And it does seem to be uh, tapping into the core aspect of uh, what you're looking at, which is do people trust other people they don't know? So it's not social trust, it's not about trusting members of your family, it's not about trusting people you know well, it's not about trusting institutions, it's about trusting people you don't know. And uh, it, it can be, it's been measured, and it, uh, and it varies across countries very substantially. And it changes over time rather slowly, but the differences are very marked. So in a country, in Scandinavian countries, typically 70 or 80% of people will say uh, they generally trust other people. In some Latin American countries, it goes down to 20%. Um, and we can do various tests to see if they are answering the question in the way we are meaning it to be asked. And it does seem that they are talking about the same thing, which is do they trust strangers? And uh, it turns out that this is fairly crucial to, uh, certainly it's central to social cohesion. It's the only thing that everybody would agree probably is a measure of social cohesion. Uh, but it is, seems to be very important to economic life. Um, GDP growth has been related to social trust. Uh, clearly, it's much easier to conduct business if you can trust people. Legal costs are lower and so on. Um, it's also been linked to innovation in economic life because people cooperate together better. Um, and it's linked to a whole range of positive social outcomes, not least good health. Uh, and, of course, uh, lower levels of conflict. Um, it's you know, almost the inverse of conflict. Uh, so trust is a, um, a definable and a measurable phenomenon. You can also define it, uh, measure it, trust for institutions, political trust, which is slightly different. Um, it is important, it has consequences, and it is a key, a key part of what most people mean by social cohesion, and it varies a lot across countries. And so what would be what would be the connection of social trust to education? Like, is it do, do people learn social trust in schools or, or, you know, are there other factors learning social trust in families or in religious institutions? 
Well, that is a very good question, actually, and not, and not, not easily answered. I mean, a lot of people who write on this will say that trust is a very fundamental attitude. Uh, it's learned early in life. It's about ch childhood socialization. You basically learn to trust through trusting your parents and other members of your family. And I've no doubt there's some truth in that. So we're talking about really fundamental socio-psychological socio uh, properties of people. Um, and in, in one respect, trust is almost synonymous in, in that sense with uh, what you might, might just call normally optimism. You know, you generally expect to get the best out of any situation um, because you feel in control, because you trust others not to cheat, uh, because you think they won't cheat with you, uh, which has a lot to do with your position and social status, but also your just levels of confidence. So those childhood influences are extremely important, but uh, the research also shows that circumstances in adulthood uh, do change people's levels of trust. So, you know, if they have bad experiences as adults, uh, they can move quite a lot on the trust scale. And... Um, social contexts then are making a difference whether it's childhood contexts or adult contexts and there are so remarkable and quite worrying shifts going on so that uh, for instance in England uh, something like uh, I think 50% of people 60% of people used to say they trust other people uh, say when I was growing up in the 60s um, this is now down to below 30% which you could argue is a real culture shift you know, we live in a different type of society now where people are much less trusting of other people. Uh, why does education affect it? Well, that's not so easy to answer either. It does seem to be true in most countries that more educated people are more trusting. It's probably partly to do with the fact they're more comp uh, confident and more optimistic. Um, it may be because they've been able to uh, uh, rid themselves of some prejudices which uh, might otherwise... Uh, you know, stop them trusting people. Uh, it may be because they've been through a school system that really puts a very strong emphasis on pe people cooperating. And one of the interesting things about the Nordic education systems is that they have children, that that cooperation is absolutely a central purpose of learning with young children particularly. And they, have, they keep children in the same classes through the whole of school uh, with the same sets of children, the same teachers. And the purpose of this is very much to uh, promote a group of people who learn how to work with each other, to share and to cooperate. So probably it's not, uh, it's both the behavioural things you learn in education which affect it and also the more general effects of education on your levels of confidence uh, as well as maybe some cognitive things, some knowledge which is beneficial. So it's quite complex, but there's no doubt the more educated people in most countries are more trusting. So if social cohesion is a global policy and most national governments are, are thinking of something about social cohesion in their education policies, and if social trust is um, a good measure of social cohesion, what sort of advice would you give policymakers about accurately thinking about social trust and education? Um, okay, well, it is, as we've discussed, a key aspect of social cohesion. Uh, it should be at the centre of concerns and uh, 
uh, possibly more more than it is uh, in policy making. Uh, I would say two things. I mean, behaviour is important. Cooperation in schools is important. So, you know, how children relate to each other in school, how they're taught to relate to each other, is building a foundation of cooperation and trust. So it's not just about the syllabus, it's about the hidden curriculum and so on. It's about the rules and ways schools are organised, uh, which is very important. Uh, but the other point I'd make, which arises out of our research, is that uh, you really have to address not only the average levels of education in society, which was the obsession of most policymakers uh, because of the PISA tests and all the rest of it, uh, you've got to look at how education is distributed. Uh, countries with very, very unequal distributions of skills are going to be unequal societies and they're going to be less trusting societies. We know this uh, almost certainly applies in, uh, you know, across the developed world in any case. So you have to look at both. You have to try to raise the general standards of skill, education and skill, but you have to look at how uh, these skills are distributed and try, to, and try to reduce the rather large gaps that are actually increasing uh, in uh, social gaps in skills in many countries. Well, Andy Green, thank you so much for joining Fresh Ed. Thank you. Andy Green is Professor of Comparative Social Science and Director of the Centre on Learning and Life Chances at the Institute of Education, University College London. He will participate in the webinar on global education policy on December 12th. Check out freshedpodcast.com for more details about the event. Fresh Ed is brought to you by the Globalization and Education Special Interest Group of the Comparative and International Education Society. Fresh Ed contributors include Rolf Straubhar, Eric Lehman, Dee Brent Edwards Jr., Chrissy Monahan, and Aaron Baxter. Original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Priming. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not CIES or the Globalization and Education SIG, which take no institutional position. If you've liked what you've heard today, please rate us on iTunes. It helps. And please be sure to visit us at freshedpodcast.com. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll see you next week.